on today's podcast, we are going to be replaying the almost two-hour-long webinar that we did on the introduction to Infinite Banking. Now, if you guys want to check this out on the YouTube channel, go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash banking, and you can access the YouTube video there. So you can also go along with the slides. I wanted to leave it here because I think a lot of you guys are audio learners. And also the team has gone on the road this past week. Depending on when you're listening to this audio, we are either getting over our October 1st Napa Valley hangover, or we are already doing our property tours and our grand opening party of our new Chase Creek Apartments in Huntsville, Alabama. If you guys have been trying to get a hold of us to book your introductory calls with us so we can get to know you a little bit better, please get on that right away because my schedule is booked up as I get back into the swing of things later on in October. But super happy to meet all of you guys in person. If it's not too late, please sign up for that October 6th, 7th in Huntsville, Alabama. If you really like this infinite banking concept, again, you can go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash banking and you can get access to this video, of course, but you can also get access to the two to three hour long e-course where you can go through each of these sections. We dive into a lot more detail in more a readable and short video format. So if you guys put in your email address in there, it will get you access to the closed end member site where you get access to Infinite Banking eCourse. Enjoy this webinar that we did. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hi, welcome everybody. This is the intro to infinite banking. Here's what's going to go on in the next couple hours. We prepared this deck and we added a bunch of slides, including some use cases. And I've also got my working sheet in here that I use to keep track of my infinite banking and when money goes out via loan, it comes back. But this is meant to be a cram school for a lot of you folks. We see a lot of familiar faces, a lot of folks who've joined us recently and the infinite banking is new to them. Even some people who have policies on the line today. It's always good to review a little bit, but I would say we'll knock this out in under an hour presentation, but we'll have time for plenty of questions. But just a little bit of background on myself. I grew up in Hawaii, Seattle, 2003 to 2017. Uh, got a wife, uh, child and a dog and a Ford Raptor are the things that I have these days. No longer an engineer. Um, and then uh, real estate. I started with that first rental in 2009. And then I got up to 11 rentals in 2015. But since then, as the investor group has grown, $1.2 billion of assets under ownership, 8,500 units, 55 projects, and about 95, 90, 95 people in our family office group. That's our inner circle mastermind group. And also joining me, Tyler Furukawa. Why don't you introduce yourself a bit, Tyler? Yeah, hi, I'm Tyler Furukawa. I am also married, have two boys. I do have a dog. I forgot to update that. I grew up in Hilo, Hawaii, then I went off to University of Washington to study engineering. I was there on an ROTC scholarship. So when I graduated, 
I got commissioned as a naval officer, stationed out at Mayport, Florida, in Jacksonville. Went to grad school in Monterey, California, and then moved here to Oahu, where I've been since 2006. Came here as active duty, as an engineering duty officer. Transitioned out in 2009 to basically become a civil servant or DOD engineer. Did a lot of project management, construction management, uh, supervisor, and then eventually moved over to the Department of Veterans Affairs and was a chief engineer there for a while. Up until 2001, when I left, decided to leave the W-2 world. As far as real estate investing, I've been investing since 2002. My path then was single family rentals and doing what we call house hacking back then. I got up to four single family rentals and basically got overloaded with work, life and investing. Took a pause, started really looking at alternative investing in 2017-ish. Met Lane in 2018 and just been totally doing syndications mainly from there on and where, where Lane really opened up our eyes. As far as insurance-wise, always been interested in that. I got introduced to the infinite banking concept probably about now 10, 10 years ago. Didn't really do anything with it. Although when I, in Lane's group and other groups I was with, I, we kept on hearing about infinite banking. So I eventually got my license in 2019, mainly to study and learn about the details of the industry, the different products available, and then been helping Lane's group since then. We're yeah. licensed across the state, so we basically can serve anywhere. Yeah, and a little bit more context to that, because it's always fun for people to learn the story. I heard about this uh, a while back ago, this infinite banking strategy, I would say since 2017. And I tasked Tyler with learning about this stuff, because I knew there was a lot of commissions and fees, and it's a strange product that it's not as straightforward as like deals to me. So I asked them to learn it more. So to eventually do a policy for myself, so I wouldn't get gouged with the pricing and Tyler would be upfront with how it all worked. I also, we also told you to go learn notes and with assisted living facilities, which those didn't work out as, as well as this, as most things don't. It's funny, like those assisted living facilities, I haven't really found anybody who does that halfway decent. There was just like a house, like a few blocks away, like an illegal assisted living facility that got taken down by the police recently. But it's like, this thing stuck. Yeah. And we do this for a lot of the clients. And the whole point is we crunch the commission and fees as low as they can go. So in other words, if you guys have a policy or you're looking at some other policies, probably beat them. But as I learned, and what I'm happy about Tyler kind of focusing it on full time is that there's this whole complex structure, and we'll maybe get into it a little bit past the lowering the commissions as low as possible and past like the 90-10-70-30 split, which we'll talk about today. But there's a bunch of other ways that I don't personally understand to customize it to what you guys want. But yeah, this is a brief illustration. I think what a problem that most investors face, which is what the heck do I do with my short-term liquidity, mid-term liquidity, or my college savings before I put it into longer deals, right? Three years, seven-year deals. And that's ideally where you want to put your money because that's where you're going to make a higher rate of return. 
sure might be a little bit more risky, but it comes with the higher reward. You don't really have 50 grand, 100 grand ready to go all the time. The infinite banking, this is just one example of the many use cases. And I, I created maybe about four or five use cases to use this very uh, flexible kind of strategy. But it fits in my whole one, two, three trifecta of simple passive cash flows. But if you're new to simple passive cash flow, it's first investing in good deals with honest people where you don't get your money stolen, where you get higher returns than the retail, stock market, mutual funds, et cetera. And then number two, you by getting all these passive losses through deals and other tax benefits, such as going from ordinary income to passive income, you can unlock a lot of tax maneuvers. And then obviously that creates more money for you to invest and then put more money into us. the third strategy, which is infinite banking here, which is what we're talking today. If you've been listening to the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast since 2016, you have seen me well change my mind a few times. At one time, I thought buying a bunch of rentals was the way to financial freedom. So you could be that cool guy at the local real estate club with all the other misguided landlords. As I became an accredited investor, I discovered the three-step system that we use today. First, syndication deals where you don't invest with dishonest operators to get better returns than the 401k financial planner garbage. Second step, get passive losses to unlock the tax best practices that the wealthy employ. And last and least impactful, number three, infinite banking. If your net worth is not yet $1 million, check out my free turnkey rental remote e-course at simplepassacashflow.com slash turnkey. All right, speaking to accredited investor to accredited investor, my 123 system is very simple to implement, but it requires plugging into a community of purely passive accredited investors like ours. Join our investor club for more insider access. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. Those who are looking to deploy more than $250,000 their first year or make over $300,000 in annual income or net worth over a couple million dollars should really look into our exclusive inner circle called the Family Office HANA Mastermind, FOOM for short. Learn more at simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. This is something that we'll get into, but this is basically a strategy a lot of the wealthy will do. I dug up this video because I wanted to date how long we've been talking about this thing. Dug out this video from 2017 when I was a really shitty speaker back at Toastmasters. I was talking about this thing. I awkwardly was taught to use my hands when I talk. We've been talking about this thing for quite some time and I didn't really get a policy till much later than this and or took me a long time to wrap my hands around. So if it's confusing to you guys, sit back and we can, we'll open it up for questions at the end. But it's something that I think that it takes a while to understand. Like a lot of investors understanding the difference between ordinary income and passive income and how passive income can be offset by passive losses. It's a simple concept. And I think we have a lot of engineers in our investor group. And sometimes the engineers can overanalyze this whole thing into the banking I'm talking specifically about. If that's maybe take a step back, it's really not that difficult, but it took me a little while to understand this whole thing. Basically, getting rid of the middleman here, we'll talk a little bit about how big companies use these bank-owned life insurance. But to me, one of the main points about using these infinite banking policies is you're making an interest rate and there's a middleman here by with the bank is how normally it works. But by using this life insurance policy, you cut out the bank in a way, and you make a little bit of that spread back. Yeah, one of the main benefits is you're recapturing your earning power or the opportunity 
call because once your funds leave the bank, that earning power for that dollar is lost. Banks, they make their money basically off of how they, they have deposits come into them. They're lending the money out. So whenever the money exits the bank, it continues to earn funds. Similarly, with a life insurance policy, we're putting funds into the policy. We're able to access those funds and still have those dollars in the policy earning and not lose that opportunity to for that dollar to continue to earn while you're using that dollar somewhere else. I'll do a quick... So, so yeah, so what is infinite banking? It truly is a concept where kind of what I was mentioning before about recapturing those losses, you basically are utilizing an asset where you're able to basically use that dollars, keep it in that asset, but obtain that dollars through a loan. And that there's multiple ways of doing that via a loan. And now you're able to have your funds work in two different places. So the original asset will be growing. And then the dollars that you access, you can do what you want. And you could use it for expenses. You could use it for investing. You could use it for college planning or retirement planning. But that's the overall concept. The vehicle of choice that we choose to use for various reasons is dividend paying whole life insurance. And there's multiple benefits with whole life. And there are other products out there, but whole life specifically, there's level premium. So that's one of the main benefits. The insurance costs and fees are pretty set as at, in regards to the insurance premiums themselves. There's guaranteed growth, and it's right now th- those ranges around two or three percent guaranteed. Seems small, but when we're talking long term wise, this is uninterrupted compounded growth, and that steady growth can then help you plan for long term. It can be used for multiple things: investing, education. So five, it could, this could replace your five to nine, your four hundred one k or IRA. You could use it as your own bank to use it for lending instead of car loans, mortgages, and then it also is a safe place to store your capital. It, that's where I personally keep my reserves. Also, there's. Of course, we're not designing it for the death benefit, but there are there is a death benefit component to it that helps with legacy planning or wealth transfer to different generations. You are accessing the growth of the policies tax-free. There's no capital gains. There's no income tax because the way you're utilizing it is via loans. It follows what you may hear as the buy, borrow, die strategy, where you're really purchasing this asset, it grows and you're borrowing as the asset grows, you're borrowing from it. And that way you're eliminating capital gains along with income taxes. And the policy isn't is designed in a way where you don't have to pay for your entire life. So traditional whole life you, that you may have, there's a premium due usually to age 95, 99 or 100. We design it where there, there is a cutoff at some point and even though you're no longer contributing, there's the policy continues to earn dividends. And that dividends then helps to boost up the value of your policy in the form of death benefit along with cash value. So this is a there's a handful on this slide. And again, I'm gonna go over this in my in a different way, because I think people learn in, in very different ways. And 
Although I do think that the most effective way of learning this is talking to somebody who just went through the process with Tyler and it's fresh in their head and they're using the loans or taking loans from themselves, funding the policy and then using it in their whole investment strategy. Although we obviously can't recreate that on a virtual seminar, but that's why we do the retreats. That's why I tell people to come out to Napa, come out to Huntsville meet other investors so you can talk about how you're using this type of stuff. Just speaking from my own personal experience, what I do is I I max fund my policies and I store a cash value in there. And Tyler mentioned the word asset, right? What's the asset, right? In this case, I think a lot of people, the way to think about it is think about it exactly like a HELOC, right? You have a house and that was your asset right? You might be paying it off or you have equity in there, but you use a HELOC to tap that equity, taking loans against that and paying the interest to that loan. But you can use that loan too. A lot of you guys will, who are new are using that HELOC to invest in your first few, several deals. Same thing here, except instead of the house being, the asset is this paper whole life policy, which is probably one of the most securest pieces of assets out there because the underlying, that the asset is backed by these insurance companies that have been paying out dividends since the civil war, much more secure than your average bank out there. But as Tyler mentioned, there's a lot of benefits to doing it. I'll highlight the guaranteed cash value growth. So when just like how your HELOC, your money's in your asset, which is the house. In this case, your money's in the asset, which is the whole life policy. It continues to grow just like the house does. So that's where that guaranteed cash value comes from. The And then the tax leave loans and withdrawals. That's part of like how I use it, right? So when my money's in here, it grows with that. And at that point, it's considered tax-free per the IRS. And this is an important thing we'll get to later, designing the policy so you don't go over that minimum threshold. Certainly, you don't want to overfund it too much because we'll talk about fees and commissions and trying to lower that as much as possible. By having it in this life insurance policy, it's the tax loophole to have this thing grow tax-free. And then uh, when you take withdrawals or you take loans from your policy to go and invest it or do whatever you need to do with the money, a lot of times, if you're smart, you can just have that be a business expense and has it, have it be tax-deductible. But we'll hammer a lot of this stuff multiple times here. Other ideas, doctors and high net worth investors like to use this as the asset protection component. And then I've personally comboed this with irrevocable trust for simplicity of the use. I can talk about that at the end with another use case. But again, a lot of stuff here, but basically it's like a HELOC where you can take loans from it and then pay it back and have this be a constant source of capital that's also growing, but it's much better than a HELOC. For three reasons. First, the banks can pull your HELOC at any point, right? They can freeze credit lines. They can't do this with your infinite banking. And this is where the whole term comes from. Family vault. Some people call this a family vault, but or being your own bank. You own this policy. This asset is yours. The second big thing on why this is better than using your old HELOC, you get the asset protection. When your money is in under this policy, it's protected, just like how a lot of people think their retirement accounts, their 401ks are protected from creditors and litigators. And then the, my biggest thing, I don't like the HELOCs, is they're great to get started, but you can't use the HELOC to tap all the equity. A lot of times your banks are going to play games with you on your appraisals 
and then lower your loan to value on that loan with the bank. None of that nonsense games when you're doing your own infinite banking policy. You can pretty much always, it's not like you have, you can't touch a certain amount of equity in the policy. If you're using your HELOC now to go into deals, cool. But eventually what most people will do is they'll transition the equity into an infinite banking policy for the mentioned reasons Real quick, okay there are some questions being typed so if people have questions yeah i think we want them to, they can type it in during the presentation we'll probably cover some of those and then at the end we'll make sure to go over all of those is that yeah before? yeah and put it into the question and answer box because it allows us to check it off once you've answered it but if something is pertaining to the slide we'll try and get to it for sure just all the random questions maybe hold to the end because we'll probably answer it like Tyler said. But if you guys have been paying attention, we met, we uttered the words whole life insurance. And typically the whole life insurance is quite the scab. I'll be the first one to tell you, right? This is the one where your long lost acquaintance from college or high school or maybe grade school hits you up on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or for some of the younger people, TikTok or whatnot. And they say, you want to go to lunch? And they sell you this like garbage whole life policy that was configured with high amounts of insurance where is basically where all the commissions and fees come from, which again, what we crank down to the minimums for you guys in our group. And it's just not a very good policy. And this is where Dave Ramsey and those guys say, yeah, just do term life. Whole life is a scam. So I just wanted to just mention, yes, we are using whole life, but it's configured in a very different way. But this is actually something that like my spouse got suckered on. And then what Tyler can also do is if you have a whole life policy, there are things like you can transfer and he can talk to you about that, but you can dissect the current whole life and you can break down what percentage of it was insurance and paid up additions. And then most times my spouse's case, she was... She got taken for one of these, but she didn't really. The way the financial planning world works, they get a bunch of young salesmen to suck their friends and family into these types of arrangements. What we did is we just cashed in her policy is what we did. But sometimes it might make sense. Teller can work with you guys to exchange it or whatnot. And I'll say it a little bit different way. I think insurance has its purpose and the purpose of life insurance is to protect your human life value. So I think that there is a purpose there, but as an investment or what we're doing is totally opposite of that. We're utilizing it for the cash value component, not the protection part of it. If it is purely the protection part, it is considered, could be expensive. I'll use a gentler word than a scam or something than lame, but yeah, I think it is Traditional whole life is expensive. There is a cheap coverage, which is term, but again, those rarely ever pay out. But again, it's there to protect your life or the what ifs. And this is a total different strategy. So that's where people may get confused if they hear it. And I think we have someone on here or a later slide going over maybe some of the chatter people may hear about whole life in general. Yeah. And when I talk to some of you guys have made me talk to your whole life financial planner people. And most financial planners or people who make these things, they don't get it. They don't get us as investors. What do we want? We want liquidity so we can take the money out and invest it in much better deals. But these other guys, they say, we want to give you higher returns 
and we want the bigger death payout. That's in their head what they think life insurance should do. But we're using this, we're using life insurance, yes. But really what I'm using it for is to get that tax loophole. So I have to pay my taxes on it. And I want to get the liquidity. I want to maximize the liquidity. And I'm willing to give up the death payout and the returns on the policy because it's small anyway. It's different than 5% to 5.5% returns on this stuff. Where what I really want is the liquidity so I can go put it in something making 10, 15, 20%. And that's the idea of a sophisticated investor. And that's where these other guys, they just don't get us how we do things with our money and how we invest it in alternative assets. Yeah, and this slide just kind of highlights, Lane touched on bank-owned life insurance. So life insurance is an asset that a lot of corporations use, including banks. So specifically, it's called a bully or bank-owned life insurance. But if you were to look on the bank's asset, the list of assets, you'll see life insurance. I think Chad was able to pull this up and you'll see highlighted down there life insurance. But bank banks clearly understand life insurance, the risks associated with that. And they hold a lot of their assets in that also. That kind of was the proof in the pudding as far as how safe it is. They're also willing to lend against it. We'll touch about a cash value line of credit. So you could take your policy to a bank, not all banks, but there's banks out there that will specifically give you a line of credit based on your cash value. And that to me is similar to the real estate. They understand the asset, and but unlike real estate or HELOC, where your loan to value is more in the seventy or eighty percent loan to value, the banks will lo- lend you ninety-five to one hundred percent loan to value on your cash value. That kind of says how secure and safe banks consider whole life insurance. Yeah, it, and again, this goes back to a lot of my discoveries and like what the wealthy do: investing in alternative assets, getting off of Wall Street. And putting their money into these life insurance products, you follow what the wealthy do and they're quietly doing something a little bit different. As the saying goes, money talks, but wealth whispers. You know, another example is Walmart. Walmart will buy insurance policies and their top dogs and store it on their balance sheet as their safe semi-liquidity stores. What I tell a lot of people is I follow what the wealthy do, but also what the banks and what the big companies do. And you take a hint from what they're doing. This is a strategy that they're employing. And if you own a business, it's not a bad way of doing things. So different use cases, again. Yeah, and it's more than just the type of asset. So I think that one of the biggest key factors on the performance or the utilization of the strategy is the policy design. We're using, we're independent where we can write with multiple companies. We choose certain companies, some for their flexibilities, and then also just how we can design it. The product is the product, and most people can utilize and design it the same way. We just choose to design it the most cash value efficient and flexible because that's what appeals to us as investors. And our design is really caters towards investors because we are investors first, and that's how we want to utilize this strategy. There's other designs out there. And it has its pros and cons or the different levers. So we, our main focus is cash value and flexibility. Yeah, and this is the, the portion of the show where Tyler's going to spearhead the next few slides because this is, somewhere, this is a time where I realized the strategy and started to employ it myself. But then I realized 
how like more technical it gets and that's where it required a got an engineer like Tyler to really learn this on behalf of you guys if you guys look back in the coaching calls which we keep in the member site and we arrange everything for everyone from lower net worth to over accredited and beyond we do talk about implementation speed and maybe you want to put 200 grand every year in this stuff or 50 grand a year you can see some of those examples we can probably do that at the end if there's time here but um you know this is some something where i had the self-realization that i didn't have the bandwidth to keep up on this stuff constantly and i need to focus on deals and finding deal relationships out there i'll vouch for tyler tyler gets on flights he goes to these infinite bank industry mastermind again events and I forced them to do it because I said, you got to like, really, you got to get involved in this stuff, just like how I did with this other stuff and really transcend your average keyboard jockey insurance provider who just happens to have a license or worse social media influencer. That's this stuff is a technical stuff and it needs to be tailorized to each person. These are the ways we'll get into designing the policy the right way. Yeah, and I touched about this in the previous slide, but it was in order to maintain the taxable treatment from the in the IRS's mind, there are some tax laws. And unfortunately, the IRS got involved in the 80s, so they created something called a MEC limit. Some people may hear that, or it's a modified endowment contract, which really prevents pre-1980s, people were able to dump in a whole bunch of money into a policy, lump sum very little insurance and really capitalize on the power of insurance. IRS has stepped in in the 80s. They created a limit basically where it says, hey, in order for this to the taxable, the tax favorable treatment only will apply if it's insurance. And you really need to purchase a certain amount of insurance in relation to the amount that you're stuffing in. We maximize, we, we take that to the limit. And so we're able to stuff as much funds into the policy, have as much cash value early on with also long-term growth, but with the flexibility while maintaining within those IRS rules. And but these rules have changed and tightened over some time. So that's what it's, we've had to stay on top of things. Basically in the beginning of 2021 or the end of 2021 was when the new law took into effect also. So they're changing and updating things every couple years or so. But that's where the design is really crucial in order to maximize those things. Yeah. And the stuff isn't getting any better. So like the best time to get a policy was yesterday, just like how it was to go into deals. The deals in 2018 kind of cashed out. That's the best time to do it was yesterday. And it reminds me a lot of like real estate professional status, just like the way Lavage changed. There's a great tax loophole, if you want to use that word, I guess for the real estate professional status. I think 10 years ago, a lot of what a lot of doctors were doing that were making $500,000, $600,000, a million dollars a year was getting a little whimsical rental property and then now getting rep status and now using all the passive losses from their deals to drain their income down to 300 or zero and not pay any taxes. And then the IRS was, wait a minute, guys, that this doesn't seem right. So they implemented all these like rules for getting real estate professional status. It's the same thing Tyler mentioned here for the life insurance. Before, you could just write all this stuff off and all the returns would be tax-free and people would put like a dollar in the life insurance and then 
the IRS was like, wait a minute, guys, there's a limit to this. Like you can't just put $1 and have the whole thing be tax free. Cause you can imagine if you guys are like financial hackers like us, where that goes, put a gazillion dollar policy and put $1 in life insurance, whole thing tax free. So there's a certain limit to that where we get into this 90-10, this 10% insurance thing. That's a little bit more historical context. Uh, we always try and stay one step ahead of the latest where the tax laws are and always be tax compliant, of course. Yeah, so the, that MEC limit, that is an IRS limit. There's two main large limits. It's usually it's the IRS limit or this MEC limit. And the second one is just company limits. So that's internal limits a company puts on and some constraints they put on. Again, the choice of company is almost as important. But as far as the MEC limit, that really, that, that limit is defined by your age, gender, along with your health rating status. So when, when you go through the underwriting process, you get approved for a certain amount of death benefit based on your age, gender, and you're given a health rating. And a better health rating will, will drive your death benefit up a little bit more. So then your MEC limit will also be slightly higher. But yeah, the main factor is for a MEC limit is the amount you want to stuff into a policy a year. And then the factors are your age, gender, and health rating. And then the second limit is basically company limits. There's various company limits. The big one that we focus on is the paid up additions or PUA limitations. Because the PUAs are so beneficial for the cash value, companies limit basically how much you can put in per year based in relation usually to your base premium. So that's the cost. And you can think of base premium as the cost of insurance paid up additions as truly the cash dump or the cash value addition and internal companies put internal limits as far as how we can design these. And you might hear three times PUAs, five times PUAs, 10 times PUAs. The companies we use have 10 times PUAs and that's really beneficial as far as cash value growth. And I think Again, maybe in the back of your head, you're hearing, you know, what Dave Ramsey said. We all know Dave Ramsey, great guy. And I think he does a great job for teaching those people. Most people out there, 90, 95% of people who are in debt don't make too much money. I think he means well. He said whole life insurance is a ripoff. And it's because we mentioned at the top, it's all how you configure. I was watching some YouTube videos on this stuff last night and trying to see the bad thing about a lot of this financial world is a lot of people, they just don't really dig into it. And the secret is in how you create it and how you structure the whole encompassing strategy where infinite banking is just one of them. This particular YouTube video, the caller said, mentioned a few things here, which I'll highlight. They, they said the break-even point for his policy was year seven. Yeah, when you're configuring this stuff with higher insurance, which you don't, which is where the commissions and fees come from, you're going to have a higher break-even point. I don't know, like some of the last policies you've been doing, Tyler, but I'm pretty sure it's a lot less than that. And then he also mentioned, the one thing I will agree with Dave on is he said, and I quote, when you work for the certified financial planners, the CFPs, as he called them, they work for the Northwestern Mutual guys. He just laughing and he says, those are the guys that just screw people every day. So it wasn't me who said it. Anybody gets offended and mad at Northwestern Mutual or any XYZ mutual company. That's what Dave Ramsey said. But again, we're configuring this a, little, a lot differently with a lot less insurance, which is where the fees and commissions come from. But 
you know, again, I think this is where most people, and this is what kind of gets me with a lot of things. Most people will just only read the headlines of videos or news clips, but when you actually read the damn article, the story is very different. Yeah. And I think Dave Ramsey is also alluding to that whole life is expensive. And I think traditional whole life, the way it's designed, it is very, it is expensive in relation to possibly other things out there to protect life, such as term. But again, we're doing it differently and the design. So this slide represents a little insight on as far as the design. Traditional whole life, so this is a 50-50 split. Traditional whole life would be more 100% premium. So all of that would go to the death benefit cost. A 50-50 design where 50% is the expense or death benefit or base premium, 50% is paid up additions. That paid up additions, as mentioned earlier, really has reduced fees compared to the base premium. So in relation that $500 going to base premium, maybe a few dollars of that will show up as cash value. Whereas for PUAs, 500 goes into PUAs. There is a fee, a slight fee in there, but I would say 475 will actually show up in cash value. So much, much drastic change. And that's why we want to really minimize. Our goal is to minimize the base premium and maximize the PUAs. The next slide shows a 10-90 split. You may hear 90-10, 10-90. I think that's all the same. A lot of times, some people put the PUA portion first. In this slide, it has the base premium first. I personally call it the 10-90 split, where 10% goes to base premium. And a lot of times, that is also a company limit in relation to the factor you can put $100 in as base premium, again, maybe $1 or so of that will show up as cash value. And then putting $900 into PUAs and your cash value would be 850 or so, not quite 900, but drastically different. So out of pocket from as the client, it's the same $1,000 going out of your pocket how it performs or where that money is going is very different based on the design. Again, same $1,000 going out. If it was a traditional whole life, you probably have $0 cash value. That 50-50, you might have about $400 for 450 cash value. And then a 1090, you'd have 800 or so cash value. It's all just purely the design. And then that impacts your cash value portion. Yeah. So some people might say, oh, we're already doing the infinite banking thing, but they could be in this format where they're paying five times as much fees and commissions and they're getting five times less cash value than they should be getting with this 1090 split. Not all policies still, again, it's, do you read the headlines or do you actually analyze what's in the content here and how, or in this case, how it's designed, right? You may be implementing IBC banking from yourself. But if, again, like we, we kind of urge people, if you're already doing the strategy, just check out what the split was on the premiums versus the paid up additions. This is typically what most people will do. Some people in our mastermind group, they'll do 70, 30 or 30, 70 splits. So like, like a mix between the 50, 50, which I don't think you ever want to do that. There's some other advantages to doing it that way. But I'd say the first thing is like, lowering the commissions and fees for you guys, which I'm sure the question comes up, like why the heck would you and Tyler lower the fees and commissions? I guess I have my reasons, which is then you put more money into deals and you actually have more money than 
and paying out in fees and you invest more and you tell more of your friends about this type of stuff. But uh, to me, it's like most of our clients are doing really big policies. So the commissions and fees are there for us to kind of keep the lights on. But it's I've always thought of this as like an added service for our investors in our investor group, certainly staying away from this 50-50 split. Yeah, and to not get into too much technical detail, but the design also enables a lot of flexibility. So on a 1090 split, that $100, even though your target amount in this case would be $1,000, what you have to put in every year is really only the $100. That, that additional $900 in this case is flexible and optional. And that's where that's how the design also plays into the flexibility. So not only the company allows, the insurance company allows you that flexibility, but the design then again allows you to put in capital as you have it throughout the policy year versus having to save up and have that $1,000 or in the 50-50 design case, $500 available on your premium anniversary. That's a that also plays a big factor for me personally, just having my, since I have most of my capital working, I don't want to sit around and bank up the large payment and have that only be able to put in once a year. I like to spread it out over the year and dump it in. We had a question here from Hillary. Does the MEC limit include the amount of premiums you pay a year or is the MEC limit the amount of additional PUAs you can add to the policy? Yeah, good question. Yeah, it's a, it's a cumulative amount. So that MEC limit is the total amount of funds you can dump into your policy. So that would include your the premiums for that year. So one unique way, so some people struggle to hear how the PUAs really add, it, add value to the policy. We came up with this scenario where it's similar to a house because most of us are investors. So Think of the base premium as your debt servicing on your mortgage, right? You're, it's something you have to pay in order to keep that asset yours. Very little value added if we're talking the debt servicing portion of your mortgage, but that's what you have to pay. Paid up additions would be more like if you were to do a renovation to your house. There's some expenses to it, but a lot of times it increases the value of your house to the more than what equal to or more than what you put in as far as repairs. So paid up additions would be similar like a renovation, boosting the value of that house, which later then you have, you boosted up your equity so you can have access to that. Or when you sell it, you make more of a profit. Base premium equals the debt servicing on a mortgage. Very Something you have to pay, very little value add to, to, to the asset. And, and we had a question from Luke here. So if you take a loan against your infinite banking policy as it grows, can the growth pay back to the loan? Yeah. So paying back the loan, you can you you could either pay that out of pocket or as you mentioned, the policy grows, it'll just it'll take it from the cash value component or it'll take it from your policy to pay that debt servicing if you didn't pay it that year. Yeah. So I guess the kind of the similar thing is, again, think about it like a HELOC, right? You can take loans from your HELOC, but I think where a lot of people, they get it mixed up or they have this false sense of needing to pay off that debt. And 
we get this question a lot, right? I have a hundred thousand dollar. I took a hundred thousand dollars out of my HELOC to go into this deal. I'm paying five percent. I think what is that? Five thousand dollars a year on that. And they think most of us on the call today, we all pay off our credit cards, we pay off our debts, but it's not like you have to really pay it off, just like your HELOC, right? Yes, you do. But then again, if you're making 10, 15, 20% on this side, then just let that 5% roll. And that's what the big companies do. That's what businesses do. If they're making money somewhere else where it's just an arbitrage game and in a HELOC, that's where you would just let that line of credit revolve. And in, in an infinite banking, same situation there. And to answer Luke's question, just like in the HELOC, you're taking a policy, your HELOC loan from it, your house is going to continue to go up in value, the asset. And in this infinite banking world, same thing, same kind of phenomenon is happening. But again, like the HELOC is cool because it gets people started and it's easy to tap that equity. But at some point you draw the limits of that policy because the banks always play these BS games with you guys on sandbagging you on the appraisals and giving you worse loan to values. Especially if you're here in Hawaii, you get these teaser rates and then it goes up after that. And then the banks can always pull your HELOCs on you where the infinite banking, it's yours. That's why the term comes banking from yourself. But you also get the added asset protection with it being life insurance, which you, you don't really get with the HELOC. So you know, if you're one of those high income earners or like a high liability profession, like a doctor, that kind of means a lot to you guys. All right. Yeah. And I do see a lot of questions about the policy loan. So I'll try to cover that on this slide. But the, there, there is a way of, so how you access the cash value is through a loan and we'll touch a policy loan and then we'll briefly touch what a cash value line of credit. So those are the two main ways. So a policy loan, literally there's no, what you're putting up as collateral is really your death benefit. So going through a policy loan, the insurance company knows that you have the death benefit. They know at some point you will die. So what they're doing is they're collateralizing your death benefit. So your death benefit overall stays the same, but your net death benefit, which would mean if you pass away, if you had any outstanding loans, the outstanding loan will get subtracted from your death benefit. And then the net death the net would get transferred to your beneficiary. There's really no approval process as long as you have that cash value in your policy. It's usually about a two business day process where you go online and you request it. California residents, they do need to print it out, wet sign it and email it in. So it's a little bit more difficult, but again, very simple. Same time turnaround as, as far as two business days. But in, in some companies, and they, are, they show it slightly different, cash value norm technically stays the same. Your net cash value may go down, or in this case, your available cash value. But for one, for one company we use a lot is Guardian. So on Guardian, whenever you take a loan out on the portal, you'll see your cash value actually just remain the same. Your net, your death benefit, you'll see go down because that's your net death benefit. In regards to how much that can you access? So we like to tell people, if you see your cash value, you can access 95% of that via policy loan. The company, the you're, you're basically paying upfront the insur interest owed till your next policy anniversary date. So they're pre-calculating that. 
based on your loan size, and then they're holding some reserves to cover that that one year of debt servicing. You don't have access to 100% of your cash value, especially if you're doing it early on in your policy year. As you get closer to your next anniversary, because there's less reserve required, you'll have access to greater than 95%. But we just use that as a guideline, 95% of your cash value. There is another question from Dave about what happens in the end, if you keep, if you only ended up with a 10% year after year because you keep kept on pulling out, but basically 90% of the loan. When you do take a policy loan, the similar to the HELOC versus on a house, the policy continues to grow. The whole amount, once you put your funds in there, it continues to grow. That the growth rate might be slightly affected based on the company and if it's direct or non-direct recognition. But the policy continues to grow, similar to your house. Your house continues to grow whether you have a mortgage or HELOC out on it. And that helps to offset the debt servicing costs. But the main benefit for us as investors accessing the funds is we're going to go put it into an asset or an investment. And a lot of times that asset cash flows is what helps to pay down that debt servicing while your policy as a whole continues to grow. Yeah. And, and it is sometimes conceptually hard to see that. Get with us, we can do what we call illustrations where we simulate, hey, what if I take a loan out every year and either not pay the interest or pay the interest out of pocket or have the policy pay the interest, but we can show the illustrations to project and see, hey, how will this perform? What if scenarios or just for planning purposes? Yeah. And that's what I'll tell you. Go talk to Tyler about that stuff. Like the direct recognition, I still don't understand that stuff. And I think that's where you partner with Tyler and then he's the guy you call when you have those kinds of questions. Or if you did pass away that sad event where you're worth more to your spouse than you are because of that payout, there's somebody to call who's a real life person who's in between the big life insurance company. I think that's the value that Tyler provides. But getting a little bit more and illustrating what this whole policy, what this infinite banking thing, this is a screenshot of a video I did for folks. And a lot of this is in the e-course. So if you guys go to um, members.simplepassivecashflow.com, you, you guys should have all access to the e-course, which goes into a lot more in-depth than what we talked about, what we're talking about today. But there's this video in here where I'm balancing. You can get multiple policies. You can layer them on top of each other, which is a strategy that I recommend. So you implement at different speeds. But this is a little tracker sheet that I personally made to keep track of. Here, I have little policies, right? Where they're from. The CV is cash value, right? This is how much I have money to tap into. And then I might have some loans out at a certain percentage, so this is my little dashboard, just a simple spreadsheet of how one might keep track of this stuff. And then your future payments that you've got to make in the future. We'll get into this a little bit later, but like when you configure this with a 90-10 split, you only have to do 10% of the commitment money. And this is the game changer, folks. Right? If it was 50%, then you got to put in five times as much money. So if money gets short, and you don't have to really fund this. The policy can, won't collapse or cave in like a black hole, especially when you configure with that 90-10, like how we do. 
But I use this to keep track of my 2022, 2023 premiums and PUAs, paid up additions. That's what that means here. But the way I'm using this as an investor, this is more the practical usage of this thing is, all right, going into deals, right? I'm going to put a hundred grand in this deal, hundred grand in that deal. And I'm looking for more deals based on here. I've got several hundred thousand dollars to tap for some deals, or maybe I want to put in some hard money and then maybe I get the hard money back and I got to replenish my infinite banking so I can keep making my return there. This is how one might use this. This is kind of the end game of how using this product. And for a lot of people getting a million or $2 million in here and just socking it away might be a good end game strategy, but it's just really nice to know that you have a large sum of cash that you can get at in emerging, especially for you business owners. This is where I keep a lot of my cash stores. So when deals, if a deal were to struggle, I pull out a big sum of money and put it in there because I'm, I'm not going to have a capital call. I'm going to make every like personal thing I can do to make sure, prevent that from happening for you guys. But this is where the money is coming from. <laughs> it's coming from my infinite banking. Um, so I'll just call up actually. I have old still, so I call up the insurance company and do my loans whenever I want to. But as Tyler said, you can just get on your computer dashboard and have it direct deposited. One funny thing that I learned is if you, at some point, you start to get policies on your spouse because you're married to a female, they typically live longer. So the pricing is a little bit better for them, but it gave me a hard time. <laughs> can I get a policy loan from my spouse's policy, probably because 50% of people get divorced and then maybe they raid their spouse's infinite banking policy. But that's just opening up the whole idea of not only getting the policies on you, but your spouse. And some people will also get it on their kids too. But there's a lot more of this content in the e-course. And then when you become a client, additional material gets unlocked, but we wanted to keep that separate from you guys coming in. It's not in your guys' portals now, but we thought it might just confuse people. But there's a lot of these other techniques that people in the FUM are doing and investors that it really comes alive when you start to come to the retreat and you start to mix it up with other accredited investors. These guys come with all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Yeah. And one thing we didn't highlight, so policy loans, you're totally in control of that. There's no monthly statement that comes in and says, hey, you owe this much interest. That is truly up to you as far as if or when you pay that back. We always recommend paying the debt servicing. What happens is we did pre-calculate the debt of interest owed up to your policy anniversary date. If you don't make that interest payment, the interest will then get tacked on to your loan principal at the, on your policy anniversary. So prior to that, it's calculated simple interest. We like to keep it simple interest. So we pay the debt servicing prior to your policy anniversary date while your policy continues to grow compounding. So that's also some of the magic there. Yeah, I personally don't really, I try and keep it stupid for myself or keep it simple, stupid for myself, the KISS format. I just, once you get past the first year, you've paid your 10%, which is all you really need to fund this thing without it collapsing or caving in, which is again, why the 10% insurance is a game changer compared to how most people will configure this with 30% or 50% where you have to put a lot more of money into it so it doesn't collapse. So I don't really freak out whether it's, I'm not paying, I'm definitely like, like Tyler said, like, I don't really pay 
the policies down unless I don't have the money. And I don't really worry about paying off the interest. I just let the cash value pay it automatically. So I don't really, I don't really worry about it, but that's just how I use my IBC. Everybody's a little bit different. This is an example of you have a hundred thousand dollars cash value. What you have available for a loan would be about 95% of that. But in this sense, we're taking a lower loan to value. So 60,000 simple interest loan. When you take that 60,000 loan, the 100,000 continues to earn. And there's various dividend rates. And whenever you hear any company announce their dividend rate, that's a gross dividend rate. What, historically, what we're seeing is about 4 or 5% IRR. In this lower interest environment, we might see more 35 to 4.5% IRR. But in this case, I think it's illustrated showing a 4% IRR. So that $100,000 policy would grow by about 4000 That $60,000 loan, you have four, five, five, 6% loan. And again, that's te- technically on the higher side, would be $3,000 in debt servicing. You can, you're able to take that $60,000 and then invest it in an asset. That asset, even if it's a 6% cash flowing asset, cash flows 3600 a year, that by itself would be enough to pay for the debt servicing. So you have some positive cash flow from the asset along with the policy still growing. And that's the beauty combined. It's better off than just doing one of the assets by itself. And I want to emphasize, we were talking a lot about the design and the whole life product. That's just one aspect, right? The whole banking system is the flow of money. So it it really is accessing that cash value to have it work outside of the policy also. So that at the end, you have your policy growing, but you also have assets outside of the policy growing. So your net worth is combined is better than just putting it in the policy and just leaving there. That still grows and works, but the true magic is accessing it and growing outside of the policy. So just want to really highlight that because that's where a lot of people are either debt advert. They don't want to take on any debt. If you take on good strategic debt, then you can really maximize your growth. And that's what this strategy really helps you to do. Yeah. And this is where most of the life insurance guys don't really get it. They're like, don't you want to make a higher, I can give you a higher return in this policy than the four or 5%, but we give up the liquidity. And as investors, we want liquidity so we can take that liquidity and go invest it in an apartment deal or a fix and flip or some other, maybe venture capital, right? Whatever you guys like to do. Personally, I like to go put my money in stabilized real estate that I can make maybe a 15% return. And there's that delta, right? 15 minus the 5% that I pay, that's that delta and that's an arbitrage game but I'm still having my underlying asset, which is the life insurance policy grow. So there's that, this is where the whole idea of where you're making money in two places or money is growing in two places. Yeah, or sorry. The other thing too, is you may hear people call it the an asset or the dual asset, because it truly is that. It's not an or. A lot of people, when when they talk to us, they're saying, I'm trying to do this deal, so I don't have the funds to do a policy. It really is a, a complement to each other. So you could do both, right? Granted, you're going to lose some liquidity year one, but 
in the long run, that'll pay off, but it, it shouldn't be looked at. You have to do one or the other. It really should be looked at. You can do both. So you would put the funds into the policy first and then access those funds to do the deal. And the first year is obviously where all the expenses or most of the expenses are taken out of, and that's where you're going to feel the biggest hit. But we're able to design and tweak something. So even from year two, definitely at year three, most people will see it as truly a deposit. So when they put that 100000 into their policy, they would have access to 100000 year three, year four, and even more as the policy ages. So that's where I mean, it takes some time to really see that benefit. But like any anything, you need to capitalize it for a little while, and then it'll pay off in, in the long run. And in, in this case, we're talking it was two to three years, and then you'll see the great benefits down, further down the line. Yeah, and maybe it clicked for you at that point. We're making money in two places. And so what some people will do over a million dollar net worth, maybe they have a lot of money in their home equity, maybe half a million. That's where maybe they might want to do $200,000, $250,000 a year. And then you can do strategies, maybe get with Tyler, like depending on where your birthday is. This is what I did to kickstart my mine is I doubled up like I was able to back fund for the previous year and then the next year all right away. So I could fund it, put my liquidity in there, and then the next day, get it into the next several deals that came up. That's really what we're talking about. That's a strategy where we're comboing it with investing in real estate or other business furniture. All right. So some there was a lot of questions on policy loan rates. Again, this is as there's a lot of fluctuation, but for policy loan rates, and if it's fixed and it varies from company to company, and I'll say Guardian is one of the main companies we use. Guardian is a fixed interest rate. What you'll feel is a 4.76. So that could be, that will be the fixed interest rate for the life of the policy. If it's variable, then that, that variable interest rate is usually tied to the Moody AAA bond index, the corporate bond index rate. There usually is a floor. So a lot of companies now have a floor of 3% around, but then that'll it can vary. And what the company will do is they'll announce it every year, what their variable rate is, and it'll it can't fluctuate more than half a percent per year. So even though like right now the interest rate shot up, a lot of the variable interest rate company or for the companies that have variable interest rates, they're only increasing it half a percent a year. That has no limit on how much it drops. For me personally, I like the fixed rate because we're utilizing the strategy for long-term planning, for the stability. Just I like that. I wouldn't want to have a variable and the unknowns down the line, but there are those options. Now, we're not going to go too much into this strategy, but this is just uh, like a preview of the different advanced strategies that some of our members will do with our policies. As Tyler mentioned, you can get a loan from your life insurance company, and that's the easy way. That's what I do. It's the easiest thing to call them up or get a policy loan from them at their what, about 5% rate. But as most of our financial hackers in our group, they always like to optimize things. And they found that they can go to these third-party banks that will give them loans on the cash value in their life insurance policy around like the three and a half, four percent 4% range. So they're making an additional 1%. Doesn't sound like a, a lot, but they could be saving maybe 20% in interest. Um, 
of course, like the bigger the policy, and this is what I tell my guys is, man, you guys spend a lot of time on these trade line things, these little things that kind of move, it's moved the needle slightly. But then again, thinking back to when I was just barely an accredited investor, like this wealth building journey, it's all about a game of inches, like kind of like football. Those are the things that are going to get you that momentum forward and um, eventually push you to that hockey stick of growth, or maybe I'm in that stage personally, and I don't really, I value my time more than money. If you're somebody who's still growing your net worth, these are the kinds of strategies that you can employ by even by getting a lower rate on your loans to increase that delta between what you invested in and get and what you're paying your policy loans at. But again, a lot of this stuff will be in the e-course analog for clients. All right. This is just an example of a typical policy we would do. This is for a 50-year-old male with a preferred non-tobacco health rating, which is, or sorry, this actually is a 45-year-old male at a preferred non-tobacco health rating. The Guardian is, we are independent. We mainly write for Mass Mutual and Guardian. Most of the policies write for investors, and including myself, is with Guardian. And that's because they offer the greatest P-way flexibility. So this specific design is a 50,000 target amount and a funding duration of seven years. With this specific design and product, the kind of the sweet spot would be between five and 15 years or so of funding duration. And there's various reasons why people would choose a shorter funding period or a longer funding period that we would go over their goals during a call. In this case, it's a seven-year funding period. Looking on the left of the annual premium breakdown, so this is where that $50,000 target amount, the base premium is really only $45,000, So that is what we would call the cost of insurance. The commissions are based off of that. So by shrinking down that number to the smallest we can. And this is basically the smallest number we can based on the 50,000. This is a company limit that we, we're shrinking that down. We're really shrinking down the expenses and commissions, therefore really boosting up the cash value to you as a client. But that 45, 46 buys a certain amount of whole life. That's $190,000 of whole life death benefit. But in order to stay within that MEC limits and the IRS limits, that $50,000 target amount, you need $985,000 of death benefit. So because you only have 190 of whole life, the cheapest way to boost your death benefit up to that amount is the use of one-year term. So you'll see this other number, $478.86. That's the paid-up additions rider scheduled. So that's so that you can add PUAs to the policy, but embedded in there is this $402.14 of OIT, and that's one-year term. So that one-year term is buying an additional $794,000. So combining that with the whole life death benefit, that's how you're getting up to that required death benefit, and then allows you to stuff in $50,000 total. So what would be due on your premium anniversary date or initially to put this in is the sum of 45, 46 and 478. So that's $5,025 is basically and or about 10% is what would be due. And that's basically all 
insurance expenses and costs. But then that 44,975, that's paid up additions, unscheduled. So that's the cash dump. That's the flexible portion that you can put in as you please throughout the year. There's a question out there, what if you don't max fund it that year? Well, the flexibility of it, especially with Guardian, not only within the year you can dump money in as you please up to your target amount or your MEC limit. If you don't reach that amount, the remaining amount will roll over to the next year. So say 50,000, year one, you dumped in 50,000. Year two, you only dumped in 10,000. That extra 40,000 of space will roll over to year three. So year three, you would be able to catch up that missed 40,000. So you could dump in 40,000 in addition to the 50,000. So you could then catch up a whole 90,000 in year three and make that policy whole. So you don't really lose the ability to dump your PUAs in as long as it's within your funding duration. So within that seven years, as long as you make your catch-up payments within that seven years, then you can do that as you please. Outside of that seven years, Guardian in this case, and all insurance companies will require you to go through additional underwriting to qualify again that, hey, why are you dumping in this large amount? Did some health, did you get some health scare or something happen that you're dumping a lot of this money into your policy? So that's where the funding duration can come into play. And that's why longer funding durations allow greater flexibility. It does require more insurance products. So there is slightly more expenses, but that's where we, on our call, we can model out different scenarios so you can see what best fits for you. Some of the key things that we, the metrics that we like to look at is how much cash value do you have early on? And this design maximizes that cash value. So you look at that column, the net cash value. So dumping in 50,000, year one, you would have $41,735 of cash value. That's a little over 83%. So when people ask us, what is the expense? What is the cost of starting this policy? That is one cost. But I like to tell people you're going to lose about 20% liquidity in year one. Your 50000 you'll have access to about 40000 via policy loan. However, in year two, if you were to dump in 50000 you'll see the cash value go up at the end of the year by about 49000 and change. So still some hit, but way less of a hit as most of the expenses are front-loaded. And then year three, if you were to dump in 50000 that's where a lot of people had that shift in mentality from, hey, this is an expense or premium I have to pay to more truly a deposit where they're putting in 50000 what shows up in cash value is 50000 And then every year after that, it just gets more and more. So that's where also the funding, we can play around with the funding duration because in the later years, including myself, we start looking forward to when can I dump in more cash, more funds into the policy and boost up the cash value even more. That's that one metric of cash value. Then the break-even point is another one. So the break-even point in the sense of the amount of cash value you have versus your total outlay. When does that break even? And in this case, it's breaking even between years five and six. So you'll see at year five, you put in 250,000, you have 249,934. 
Again, these are projections based on the current dividend rate. This is assuming 5.65 gross dividend rate is what this illustration assumes. That dividend rate is not guaranteed. Dividends are pretty likely to happen. As Lane mentioned, Guardian specifically has been around for 162 years. They've paid a dividend for 162 years through consistently. The amount of dividends have fluctuated. We are historically in a low interest and dividend environment, 5.65. But And we would expect it to possibly remain low. Interest rates are increasing, so possibly we'll see a rise in dividend rates. But this illustration assumes 5.65 gross dividend rate um, every year. There are some tweaks we can do with the design that possibly pulls that a year ahead. So you're breaking even maybe between years four and five. Even that liquidity as far as 83% year one, there's there's some tweaks we could do based on your situation that maybe we can get that as high as 87, maybe 88% liquidity in year one if you have capital available and able to jumpstart the policy, basically. So my understanding of this sheet of numbers and this is the illust- this is what's called an illustration so this is what Tyler when you guys meet and you guys get an illustration this is what pops up and is given I don't really understand all these numbers but I personally look at is the net cash value as a percentage to what you put in like Tyler said you, when you configure like how we do typically you're running away with something better you're losing less than 20 percent your first year I know my first policy I did, who who was taking a lot more in commissions before I found Tyler, it was like double that or double the loss, basically. That's your little quick tip on comparing these policies. And then another good exercise is that it might be a loss of 20% here the first year, but then you start to recoup it. By year three, it might be half of that. 90, 92% is what you get. But then like Tyler said, like the break-even point is always a quick way to compare policies and ultimately how much fees. Because these life insurance policies, they're commodities at the end of the day. They're all underwritten and done by the, the same top-tier companies. Now, I'll mention there are other some like lower-tier companies that you wouldn't want to mess with, in my opinion. You might get a little bit better, but I just don't think it's worth it when you know the whole purpose of you doing this is security and assurity. That's that net cash value. That's how you evaluate the break-even point. And again, like that, most people doing these policies, it'll break even at year seven, year eight at best. But obviously, when you ran this number, a little after year five. Yeah. And you'll see on that left, the premiums go to zero. So from year eight on, when we're designing this for a seven-year funding, you we exercise, you'd exercise the option where at year eight, you're converting this pre, the policy to a paid-up policy. So by, by doing so, no more premiums are due. That's the good thing. The bad thing is then you can't contribute. You can't stuff in any more funds or PUAs also. Again, the... That's where we can play around with the funding duration. Some knocks on the, this, the 1090 design is that, hey, we want to fund this for long term. That's where maybe we would choose a different company that has a different flexibility. But again, you'll be giving up some of that year to year flexibility that 
Guardian specifically is to me the benefit of that is not having to dump in fifty thousand on your policy anniversary day every year. You have that flexibility throughout the year. It rolls over and things of that sort. As Lane mentioned, other companies, and I think we cover that maybe in a later slides, are all companies the same? And we, I can go over some of the basic differences did, there. Did you get Annette's question? I think that was it, right? Yeah, so we are independent. I would say the majority of the companies we use, majority of the policies you write is for Mass Mutual or Guardian. Mass Mutual has a different flexibility, and that's in the funding duration. But that's where that, that, that company, the PUA flexibility is not as great. So the funding duration, they have a lot of flexibility in that. So we don't have to necessarily determine the funding duration up front. Whereas with Guardian, we're saying, hey, this is a seven-year design or a 10 or a 15-year design. With Mass, you don't have to set that. It could be a five-year design or it could be a 30-year design. However, it's best suited that you have that 50000 it'll dump in every year on that policy anniversary date. So not too conducive for investors in the sense where most of our capital, we don't want to have it tied up and building up and have to put in 50000 on that on w- within a few weeks every year or else you can't contribute. But that's another option with Mass Mutual. Yeah. And just Tyler says, uses the word flexibility. The way I look at that word is I have three policies, Emeritus, Pan, and Guardian. So what I don't like about my Emeritus is exactly what Tyler's talking about, which is the uh, the flexibility. I got to like fund that thing every single year or something like that on the policy date. And I think at Pan, I have to do it every other year. I'm probably butchering this, but that's what it means by flexibility. Whereas Guardian, I don't really have to do that, Tyler. <laughs> Tell yeah. me. Yeah. Um, yeah. 10% like in this design, it's the 5000 a year is what you would be putting in for a $50,000 design. And the 45000 is truly flexible. And you won't lose the ability to put in that 45000 if, say, you skip two or three years. It'll just bank up and then you'll be able to make that catch up at the very end. Yeah. And going over Annette's other question in this illustration, is the policy paid up after seven years and no more premiums need to be put in? I can already tell Annette's already doing something like this. Like this is the, I think this is the downside of the 90-10 arrangement because the 90-10 is great for new people stuffing a whole bunch of money in here, right? There's a deal, you've got two, 300 grand, you just throw it into the policy and then you take 180, 200 grand and put it into the next deal. That's ideally what the 9010. It's kind of like the launch pad, the quick start plan. But what I what I tell most folks is, yeah, do the 9010, get started, get like a hundred, few hundred thousand dollars of cash value loaded up in there and just get that. You might take the money out the next day and put it into deals. And that's great. That's exactly what you should be doing. In the long run, as a net suiting to shoot, as you near end game, right? And it's not necessarily how old you are. To me, it's where your net worth is. When your net worth starts to go around four or five million dollars net worth, or even two and a half, if you guys are more frugal out there, you start to be seeing this infinite banking policy as this end game for you to where you can make five percent tax free with very little to no volatility. Then you're maybe looking for more of a long term place to just store money as deals cash out. You don't go into more deals, you just put it into your life insurance and have it grow under your umbrella. 
that's, I think, where some of the members who are already in that end game stage might be one to that 70-30 split. Is that right, Tyler? That's my understanding of it. Yeah, I'm a strong believer in the 1090 for all situations. I, there's some questions on here about, so Ming mentioned there are no deals in life insurance. That is a very true statement. I know we're talking a lot about the different companies, maybe different products. The statement, there are no deals in life insurance is, yeah, if you look across the board through all the strong mutual companies, the product themselves, I think will vary very little in actual performance. Now, illustrations is one thing, actual performance historically I think, and we're talking the four mutual, large mutual companies, which is like New York Life, Northwestern, Guardian, Mass Mutual. All of those have all fluctuated, basically would be performed the same way in, in actual performance. What I feel is the differences with the companies is some of the nuances. It might be the PUA flexibility or the funding duration flexibility the portal use, the ability to just go in and do things online on the portal, the ease of the portal. I'll throw Penn Mutual in there also because I think that's an up-and-coming company that has been you know, making a strong move. Historically, though, the, 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 the actual performance hasn't and there's not a lot of transparency there from the company itself. I think that they are performing nicely. So I think that's one other company that may get added as far as a very strong mutual insurance company in the future. Some of the trade-offs with the 1090 split or the 9010 split, for me, the one downside is that for the way we're doing it with Guardian is the funding duration limitation. This maxes out because your priest premium is so small, there's a ratio on the amount of death benefit you can get towards this 45, 46, or really in this case, 190,000 of death benefit. So I can't, we can't push the death benefit, say, to 2 mil based off of this 190,000 of whole life death benefit. So it, mac- it, it limits that part where you can't do this. You'd start have to paying a little bit more premiums, but it also limits you on 15 years, 16 years max, maybe for 50,000 design that you would want to fund this towards. Now, I personally view 16, 15 or 16 years as a pretty long funding period. The true IBC pr- practitioners or Nelson Nash, you'll hear that you, know, you want to fund this thing for it. I personally feel well, you would open up additional policies as long as you have your insurable if you're not insurable someone within your family or within your business you would have an insurable interest for so that's the one major downside you may hear on the downside is the dividends are less because it gets puas get treated different than base premiums and so forth but from all of the case studies we've seen is that Overall, even though your dividends may be less, your overall cash value is more. And that's really what we care about is the cash value component of it, of the way we're designing it. We haven't been able to find one where overall performance as far as cash value wise is impacted versus say a 3070 or a 4060 design. Because even though on those other designs, the dividends are higher, the overall net cash value is is still less because of the added expenses built in there. Yeah, and I think we're getting out the scope of the infinite banking today. I think a lot of the 
people are that question is alluding to what do I do an end game? In my opinion, end game, like IULs and these putting a whole bunch of money in here, like we're talking over a few million dollars in life insurance is a little overkill. To me, yeah, you might not be in value add real estate, but you're at least in like triple nets and you're still in real estate. And that's why the way for most of the people listening here, you guys are sophisticated investors. You guys aren't like the average Joe just throwing a whole bunch of money in life insurance in end game. You're still making, doing better than 5%. If you want 5%, cool. If all you need is $100,000 of passive income a year, cool. But I think most of us in a retirement and end game, we all want $20,000 of cash flow every month. But you're going to need a lot of money in life insurance. So that's why I like with Tyler, this kind of goes into more end game financial planning. This is maybe we'll answer questions at the end of this. But to me, there's other investment options other than what we're talking about for that lower risk, lower return. Like I said, triple nets, maybe going back into the traditional investment market. But Kind of, we got to get through some of these last slides here. Whole life versus term life. Term life, the reason for that is to protect you against somebody prematurely dying, whether you, it's your spouse and your family is left out. That's the purpose of term life. And I think everybody should have that, at least to cover at least a million or $2 million. But that's cheap, typically. And a lot of times that's in your employment, your employer will cover some portion of that already. So I think that's two separate things, right? Again, we're just using this whole life product to get this infinite banking, building this asset, making money in two places at one time. But when you start to fund larger policies, like a hundred grand a year, $250,000 a year, it's a byproduct of the term life. So a lot of the clients just turn off their term life because they already have it at this point. And then a quick discussion on IULs. IULs is like the third proportion here. We don't use IULs are typically for higher returns, but you give up the liquidity. And typically I would be careful. Everybody, anybody selling IULs are typically very high commission products. And it's a very multi-level marketing kind of a program what they I've seen out there. They get you to, they get everybody to sign up for these training programs where you can sell life insurance to your friends and families and suckers. And I would just stay away from the IUO. It, there is a certain tool for it in end game if you just want to make 6%. But to me, for the people listening to this webinar today, you guys can do better than that. IULs is investing for the clueless. For, it's like when you build up four, five, ten million dollars $10 million plus and your kids and your kids' kids take over that money. That's what they invest in because they don't have a clue. They don't have a network of what to invest in. So that's... To me, what the IUL tool is for, but maybe Tyler, can you go over like the mutual insurance company, stock insurance company differences real quick? Sure. I'll just add a little bit about the IUL. I actually bought IUL. That was my very first policy. That's what sent me down also this rabbit hole of researching because it didn't really perform to what I wanted to do. Now, again, with IUL, similar to whole life, there's a lot of design features in there. So it probably wasn't the most or best design, but why I personally don't like IULs is the underlying product of IUL is term life. It is renewable term. Unlike the guarantees of whole life, where it's a set premium, those expenses can be managed with renewable term. Basically you're buying a new insurance product every year and 
although the numbers and the returns may look great as you're young, similar with like level term is cheap when you're younger, it, it's ridiculous when you're older. If in your 70s or 80s, if you're having that premium renew every year, that's a large expense and a very unknown cost that I'm not personally willing to utilize this strategy for. That's my take on IULs. There is a question, can you convert it into an IBC? There is something where with all insurance, you can do a 1035 where you take the cash value of one policy, turn it into another policy, or roll it into another policy. Sometimes that makes sense. Not, I wouldn't say it blanketly. It, it always makes sense. But there's times when we don't recommend it or we're just trying to would recommend people how to maximize what they already have and not roll it over because there are some expenses you're starting over. But there is something called a 1035 where you're rolling over the cash value to a new policy. Are all companies the same? We touched a brief on this, but what we particularly choose and what we recommend is a mutual insuring company. And the mutual part is key because that's where you as a policyholder are basically owners of the company. There's no stockholders or anything. A stock insurance company, say Prudential, has stockholders. So their vested interests may be split, right? It's not purely about the the policyholders. They have stockholders that they have to appease. As a mutual insurance company and a participating mutual insurance company, that's where the company profits are returned to you in the form of dividends. So that's where you'll be receiving dividends from the mutual insurance company. We like would like to play with the large ones. Lane mentioned there are some smaller ones. Some of those limits that we talked about may be a lot less restrictive on some of these smaller companies. There's usually a reason for that, that they want to, they're trying to build up, they want to attract people. So maybe that 10 times PUA limit may be 15 or so, or it may be, you could do like a 90 or 595 split on a policy, but there's high risk. I think with smaller companies, the unproven track records, I don't, I wouldn't want to utilize a long-term strategy with some of the smaller companies. That, that's where, again, the strategy is more for stability and for long-term planning. And I prefer to use proven large companies. Yeah. And trust me, guys, I get approached with all kinds of stuff these days and like insurance companies from Puerto Rico that supposedly can get you around some tax things and all that type of stuff. Like to me, like you're not like, this infinite banking thing is what like everybody should do. Everybody should be flowing your money through your infinite policy. So you can be growing that asset there and then taking out and invest it. Right. And make way more money there. That's the one, two step program to make a little bit more on the, on this banking side, taking on a lot more risk is just not worth it guys. Like that's, I don't know. I don't, I just don't think that's wise. Yeah, and this is another question we get asked a lot is, am I too old to, to start this or will this strategy benefit me? I've had, I have some 60-year-old clients, 70-year-old maybe pushing it, but again, we can, we can run some scenarios and see if it makes sense. The, again, because we're using insurance, I think the largest f- determining factor would be being able to qualify. The age itself isn't really the factor it's health conditions, even whether you're 70 or 40, the health conditions 
usually is the factor on being able to utilize a strategy. If it makes sense, the biggest thing, a 20-year-old versus a 60-year-old, if you look at the illustration, the biggest difference you'll see is the amount of death benefits. So say for that $50,000 policy, it's around $900,000 of death benefit. For a 20-year-old, it might be like 1.3 mil. For a 60-year-old, it might be 500,000 for that same $50,000 target amount. So that's one obvious difference. Again, we're not designing it for the death benefit, but that's one obvious difference. As far as the cash value performance, it'll surprisingly, it'll be pretty similar between the different ages. The biggest difference is when you look further down, because this is a long-term strategy where, you know, compounding really is impacted later down the year or down the line, a 20-year-old has theoretically about 60 plus years of compounding. A 60-year-old or a 70-year-old may only have 20 or 10 years of compounding, and it's on that back end when you really see these huge gains. So early on, it'll probably perform the same. It might, instead of breaking even between years five and six, it might break even between years six and seven for someone a lot older. But it's really what you'll lose out is on the back end compounding. At the end of the day, it's not configured off. Like we're not doing it for the death payout, guys. That's what term life is for. This is just mainly to get an asset that grills in two places. If you can't qualify, maybe you've got younger kids You can buy a policy on them. We had some people, people who are in their 70s, buy it on their 30-year-old kids who that's where you dump all your money to. And it sounds counterintuitive because you think you're getting a life and policy on your health. But then again, you aren't, right? You're just buying an asset and stuffing money into it is what we're doing here. And then I'll caveat this slide that you would definitely need to consult your tax professional. We're not CPAs. But uh, you've heard the term MEC and the modified endowment contract. So if you were to cause the insurance product to become a MEC, then anything you do from there on forward would be taxed. So even a policy loan, takeout distribution, any of that would be would be taxed. So that's why by far you, you, we want to prevent that from becoming a MEC. There is maybe a time down the line where you want it to match if you intend not to touch any funds from it and you just are planning on having it transferred to your to the beneficiaries. But while you're utilizing it, we definitely don't want to match. Cash out surrenders, this does perform like a Roth IRA in that sense where you'd be able to withdraw your contributions tax or penalty free at any time. You technically... There may be a time to do that also, and we can talk on specific strategies on that. But once you take it out, then you've stopped the compounding on that. And that may not be wise, especially early on. As far as the other, any other time would be if you were to just totally pull the policy out or surrender the policy in that sense, where any gains above what you contributed could be, would be taxed at that point. But other than that, the death benefit, the Upon death, the death benefit transfers tax-free to your beneficiaries. It still falls under the state tax limits, though. So be aware of that. And there may be strategies to help with that. So we're going to get into some questions, that common questions that people will normally give us. The first one here is, if I become ill, what's this accelerated death benefit, writer, Tyler? Yeah, the good news. So the good thing is... Uh, 
with a certain size policy, there's an accelerated death benefit rider that's free of charge that gets tagged on to the policy that in the event you develop a chronic illness or a terminal illness, you would have early access to the death benefit. You always have access to the cash value regardless, but this often the, the death benefit is much higher than the cash value. And in the event of chronic illness, and that would be basically you can't do two of the six daily acts of living. Terminal illness would be that two different physicians determine that you have less than 12 months to live. Both, I think, bad situations, but the benefit of utilizing this asset, again, we're not doing it for that, but it does have this benefit where you'll be able to draw higher amounts from it to help cover those expenses while you're living versus just the death benefit. And I'll just mention too, it's a PSA. Like we had a guy, he had a, like a heart attack or some kind of operation on this heart and apparently he qualified for this. He's fine today. Probably just can't do enter the CrossFit games or do Winhof method and going swimming or anything like that. But he got a big payout. So if anything happens like that to you guys, talk to your insurance provider because it might trigger getting Yeah, we talked the chronic terminal. Other riders, there there are other riders that could get added to the policy. Again, we are utilizing this purely for the cash value component of it. If you wanted these other riders, oftentimes it's better off having a separate policy specifically to address those needs. But if someone really wants to, we could add these on. Guaranteed insurability rider, that's an added cost that you have on your policy that even in the event that you your current health rating changes, that you're able to purchase additional death benefit or insurance. Long-term care rider, similar to that accelerated benefits rider, it just allows you to access some of the funds in the event for long-term care. Again, that one specifically, I think it's better off to have it a separate policy, a separate life long-term care insurance specifically to address that versus trying to tie it on. And then the waiver of premium rider, again, also another expense that in the event that you can't make your premiums, they can cover it for a certain amount. But for our design, because we're minimizing that the P weight or the premium payments, that really doesn't benefit much because it doesn't really add much to the cash value since our premiums are so small to begin with. There's possibly you could have a P weight premium rider, but that would be very expensive as well. And usually once you one, if you're able to make one or two years of full payment max funding, that the growth of the policy, even if you were to just stop payments from there on out, and we have the policy growth cover the premiums, that's usually a better strategy than paying for the premium rider. Yeah, to me, these are like add-ons on a car. You buy the car to get from point A to point B, just like how you do this IBC to make money in two places and have a store of cash. So all these other things are just add-ons and other additional fees. I don't know. Depends. Talk to Tyler if it makes sense for you. But uh, this is, this is. I think this opens the eye for a lot of people. This is like a working example of people actually using this dang thing and how it augments what you're doing on the investment side. So maybe walk us through this, Tyler. Sure. This was, I don't know if people heard me talk about, hey, if you want to get 100000 of passive income a year, you literally 
would be investing 100,000 a year for years one, two, three, and four in syndications. And then year five, theoretically, year one deals would be cashing out, doubling if things went well. So the 100,000 in year one turned into 200,000 in year two. And then it would, you live off 100,000, reinvest the other 100,000 and keep the machine going. This strategy, this double dip, just rolls insurance into that, the IBC into that. year. It would require a little bit more upfront capital because of that loss of liquidity in year one. But in this case, it would be a $100,000 target amount funding for 10 years. Your actual MEC limit would be 150000 So that's where you can actually year one stuff up to your MEC limit. But in this case, so this is that blue box, you max fund, you would fund 125000 year one. You would have 100000 available in the form of a loan. So you take that policy loan, fund your two policy or two deals, $50,000 deals. Year two, you have, you fund 100000 and your cash value at that point would be about 198000 You could take out 98 or total. So it would go up about 98000 So you could take out 98000 You'd have to supplement 2000 more. And these are just rough numbers. But that will fund your, your next two deals. Year three, you fund your policy, 100000 You would have access to that 100000 to fund your deals. And year four, same thing. You'd fund the 100000 to your policy, have access to 100000 fund your two deals. In year five, when your deals pay out, instead of now having living off of the 100000 you could take that 100000 pay your, your policy premiums or max fund it to 100000 for that year, and then take that other 100000 and fund your two deals and keep that machine going. And then from there on out, from year five on, technically your deals are funding your premiums and you still have access to the cash value on those later deals. You could then do the reduced paid up at year eight, or because this was designed for a 10-year funding, you could continue funding it, which most people at that stage, when they're seen dumping in 100000 and having more than 100000 show up in cash value, would want to continue fund it for as long as the design was for. And another concept that way I look at this IPC is when you first do this, you got to decide how much you're going to fund it every year for a five to 10 year range. Basically, what you're doing is that's your container side. And because we configure with 9010, it's pretty easy to hit your minimum contributions. You fund most of your first year, you're done. You don't really need to put any more. So if you lose your job or something like that after you don't really need to make your next year's commitments. And I think that's a big game changer. And it took me like four or five years to understand that myself. But the idea is creating this container to grow. You may not have the cash value inside or because you're taking the money out and growing it somewhere else as you should, because you're going to make a higher yield or you should make a higher year outside of this policy. But at some point, and this is the concept of end game or growing your net worth past two to five million, you want to return the money back to this container and you're going to wish you had your container as large as it could be. And this could mean for a lot of you guys, you know, maybe a million and a half, two million dollars of potential cash value funding that you could hide money in there, asset protected and tax free dividends there. That's the concept of this is more this is a 
different diagram, which you guys can take a screenshot. All this will be in the e-course for you guys that digest. This is maybe partially this, you're starting, you're funding it like in Tyler's standard plan. Mm -hmm. And then you start to keep some cash here for unexpected life happenings, college. There are a lot of different use cases. We'll, we'll get to the end of the presentation here, but this is there's a lot of different uses for the same thing. And like I said, this is how I use it in the growth mode. When you're taking the money out, you're investing in deals or whatnot. But yeah, just a lot of different use cases. Yeah, this is maybe a little another advanced strategy of the triple dip the first thing you dump it into the cash value or the you dump it into your policy you leverage out you can dump it into a brokerage account and then take a security backline of credit and then do the syndication so it's just putting it in another asset that can be leveraged again these are maybe more advanced and someone who you know, is comfortable with debt and strategic debt and maximizing that. But this is where that same dollar could technically be working in three areas at the same time. The limitations for policy. So again, because it is insurance, there's a maximum insurable amount. Your human life value is what the what insurance companies are looking at. That's generically tied to your annual income. And as you get older, because your earning years are less, that means you, you can qualify for less, you could qualify for less and less. So the rule of thumb is based on your annual income. There's some flexibility with that and we can talk specifics on a private call. One major threshold is a $10 million death benefit or an accumulative death benefit. That's where usually a, a third party verification would be required to validate your the income look at possible tax returns and it becomes a lot more challenging once the death benefit crosses 10 mil. Health, your health obviously is a big factor on what health rating you get. Again, keep in mind that you're being rated amongst the average American your age. So it's it, some existing health conditions are expected. The biggest thing is that it's being monitored or, or treated and there's follow-ups in that one thing we normally recommend if you if there are you would go to your primary care or someone to see what your records will look like because the underwriting process does pull the records from your primary care provider and just see if there's any notes in there or ask the doctor if there's anything in there that may impact your insurability and if there is say like there's a recommended colonoscopy but then you didn't do it that now would be the time to do it so that there is that follow-up documentation in your record. And now if you become uninsurable for whatever reason, then that's where you could look at a spouse who may be insurable, some business partner, as long as you have an insurable interest or why would, you know, why the need to be pulling a life insurance policy on someone else, that there's possibilities of that. So even though if you're very old, maybe a working child, that they have a, you have an insurable interest on, on, on their life, that you maybe be able to fund a, a policy on a working child versus yourself. Yeah. So the $10 million cumulative death payout or that, that cap, at 10 minutes. Most people won't hit that in their first policy. I think most people will get up to that in their second policy where they layer on top of that. But $10 million, that's like putting in quarter million dollars every single year for 
six or seven years. Um, I would say most people will start off with maybe $100,000, $150,000. And that kind of segues into, all right, we talked a lot about this stuff today. What's Give me a starter. What do people normally do? I did this video way back when my hair was a little longer or didn't stay down. So here's the use case. So like a million dollar net worth person, they're able to save sixty dollars to $80,000 a year. That's the net, right? What you save. Most people in our group make maybe make two or $300,000 a year and they spend most of it, but they have sixty dollars to $80,000 left over. That's like the net is what I'm calling. So what I normally will say is now take a third of that net. So a third of the 60 to 80 and use that as your base commitment every year for five to seven years. So what that works its way out to is for most people here, at the very least do 30 to 50 grand a year. But then if you have a lot of like lazy equity, home equity, IRA money, then you may want to layer up more on top of there. So in, in addition to your 30 grand a year, say another, another case, somebody has 500 grand of lazy equity, which is very common. Most of our investors, they come to me in their 40s and they have half a million dollars, million dollars in their IRAs or various places, at least half a million dollars in their home equity. And they want to get it working. And I think this is the use case of you're supposed to put it in deals. You're new, so you don't really know where to put it. So the infinite banking is a great way where it is relatively zero risk in terms of like where these life insurance companies are going to go. It's a great place to just throw your cash from now, make a little bit of yield before you get your bearing, build your network, figure out where to put your money, who to trust for these deals. So for this example, if you have half a million dollars of home equity or some other source of liquidity, what I would probably be doing is in addition to your 30,000 a year, add in a hundred because you funded in five years or double up, put a little bit more the first several years. So, I mean, you could fund it anywhere from $130,000 a year to $250,000 per year. Again, because the way it's configured with only 10% insurance, once you've funded the 10% of it, you're done, which is typically in the first year or partial of the first year. Um, if, and this is the game changer, when people are configuring this with 30% or 50%, you may have to put in another two, three years of payments so that the policy doesn't cave in. So this is all the goal of this is to get your money in to invest, but also increase the container size as much as possible. The 90-10 policies to me is the best tool for that job to overfund it and expand that container size as quick as possible getting you the maximum amount of the cash value so you can go and take it out as a policy loan and invest it in deals or whatever you want and make more money elsewhere and still make money in two places. We There was some discussion over what do I do after. That's where I would say maybe in year two to four, you get another policy on and layer on top of it. Because at this point, you've taken some policy loans, you get, the, you, you get it, you're more comfortable with deals. So you layer on a bigger policy, big kid policy. And this is what I did. I started with $50,000 in my first policy. I did that for a few years and I layered another one. And then I layered another one where I hit my $10 million cap. And as an entrepreneur, it's hard for me to verify my records because I don't pay taxes because I don't make income. That's make all passive income. You drive it down to zero. 
One of the downsides is you can't qualify for more than a $10 million insurance policy, or as Tyler tells me, it's it's going to be hard. But I would argue why you need bigger than a $10 million policy where you can sock away $1, $2 million of liquidity. At some point, it becomes impractical. And to me, like the way I look at money, even in endgame, you should still be growing your money in maybe less value add aggressive deals, but maybe more stabilized assets, triple nets, things like that. But uh, I would say like the lesson learned that most people say is don't wait and overanalyze. Like, I think we got into some of the details a little bit, but just keep it simple, folks. Like just create a policy, fund it with a hundred grand a year, take it out, take a policy loan and invest it. It's simple, very simple. The interest rates and the way these policies, they're always changing and they're never getting better. So the best time to do it was yesterday. And at the end, like your money is more safe than deals and banks. And that's why, you know, Tyler and I will, will talk about new people coming in. And I believe in the deals because I invested in them myself. Sometimes there's very green investors that have a lot of money that they need to get it working. I always can say with a clear conscience, I'm like, yeah, Tyler, just sign them up for a policy and just at least make, they can make 5% on that chunk of money because they're new. They haven't done the syndication e-course or met other people and started to diversify into a multitude of different alternative investments. But here's some of the, if you guys want to start to queue up your questions, we can get going through them after this slide. But here are the use cases that I've personally come up with. So starting at the top, the top level, we, this, we've talked about this quite a bit, investing in investments, alternative investments. I'm coming out with a new prep fund where it's just going to be a straight 12 to 13% paid monthly. What better than the combo with your 5% infinite banking? You can also combo up for like college saving there at the top, right? This is the 529 plan killer. Um, this is the ability to keep money for the short term. Maybe your kids are going off to college in five years or 10 years. Great place to put this money. The bad thing about 529 plans, they're like 401k plans. They're investment vehicles for the clueless. And they're bad because they, you're stuck with all these retail investment products with high fees. And they're just investments for the masses where all you guys listening, you guys have been opened up to the world of alternative investments. Sure, you have to grow your network and get comfortable with the people you work with, but as you can typically find better returns and a lot safer in more real assets than the stock market or those investment options. But this is where it's a lot of people use this interchangeably with their college savings for their kids or their retirement. Bottom left, the end game investor, the guys that are above two, $4 million net worth, they have, they're totally fine living off of 10 to $20,000 a month. I'll probably put Tyler in here a little bit. Maybe not all your money, but a good chunk of your money is just sitting here, just churning at 5%. And at this point, maybe like a 70-30 split policy where you can continue to fund it longer term might be better. But it's just an opportunity for you to have, just it's simple, right? If you need some money, just take a loan from your cash value, your life insurance company. It's super easy. And your money is there and secured, more secure than banks. And then the bottom, just general new investors, right? You come into the alternative investment space. 
you don't know what to do. Some people call it, wow, I got all these options, right? Multifamily, self-storage, hotels, right? All these private funds where you're investing when you know the people and you've come out to a retreat and you meet all these cool people and they're all like not paying off their houses, using debt appropriately. But it's takes a while to get into this world, right? Unless you wanted to start throwing $100,000 in a couple dozen places. Now, this is a great place to put your money and let yourself season, let that relationship seasons. Let's see that first round of deals go full cycle before you start to invest larger and larger amounts. Certainly get over 20 to 30% in your net worth into alternative investments. But the majority, I would feel comfortable telling people that putting into this stuff is probably more secure much more than the stock market, mutual funds, and probably more secure than just leaving it in your own bank. Banks fail. But well-capitalized life insurance companies that put people through rigorous health underwriting is a lot more secure. And and at some people, some people will do the HELOCs at first and they'll feel uneasy about that monthly interest. Same concept here, like instead of the HELOC, you're using your IPC, but for the reasons that the banks can't pull your note asset protection. And I think this is also great for a lot of the people on the call. You guys are the more sophisticated investors in your family, but maybe you have older parents or younger kids that don't really understand the whole syndication investing. And if not, let us know. Maybe we can give them access to some e-courses to get them more educated. But maybe that's just all they want. My parents, they're never going to invest in deals. They just, they, they're just stuck in their ways but maybe this is definitely better than what they're doing and i think it's something that you can promote to them as and feel good that it is very secure i i don't know if the term risk-free but it's the closest thing to zero risk out there any other use cases Charlie? i think i missed or no i think that 529 is a big thing for me personally i don't i have a 12 and a nine-year-old i don't think Instead of contributing to a 529, which I feel is trapped, I put it into a policy. Also with long-term care, because you're growing cash value or you're growing cash, instead of having a long-term care insurance policy, I intend to tap into my the whole life policy in the event for healthcare in the future. A couple others, so doctors or just high net worth people in general who are more concerned with legal liability, getting sued. Like I've comboed this with my irrevocable trust where irrevocable trust is not a revocable trust. It's a lot more heavy duty. If you're under four or $5 million, probably not even worth it. But people who are an end game or high liability like doctors, you can make an irrevocable trust, get it off of it. But the problem there is like getting your money in and out is difficult and cumbersome. So by leaving some of your money, your liquidity in this infinite banking, policy, it's life insurance, like we said, it is protected. It's under the umbrella or in my visual representation, it's like under the patio in a way that you have the simplicity of use and access, but it's still protected. And you can have maybe more or a portion of your net worth in your irrevocable trust. So that's another way of use case for this. And then entrepreneurs out there, business owners, this I think the biggest thing about businesses is there's always going to be ups and downs. 
the people who survive the downs are the people who take over the competition that fails and dies off. The people who are well capitalized are the kind of just never fail. They just lose money or they just run out of money to keep them going. But this would be the place where you would put your liquidity for your payroll in case of a rainy day. Now, for most of you and you folks listening who are just salary guys, I don't really see a huge need for liquidity stores. Most people, three, four months of salary is more than enough. So this is more for the the business owners out there who may want to keep a few hundred thousand dollars in there for their, their staff of a dozen people. Jay brought up a good point. Key man insurance for a succession team, that, that is huge also. So a lot of corporations do utilize that. It's a way of having some incentives also for their key employees. A business will pull insurance on their key employees. Business continues to own it, but it serves as a potential retirement incentive or supplemental income for the employee. Maybe at some point it become they become vested and you could either transfer the ownership to them or just pay their retirement from the policy as a business. So that is a key thing. Uh, one more thing is just it's generational wealth. I think we touched a little bit about that, but insurance and life insurance specifically plays a big part in that as far as potentially creating generational wealth and continuing that legacy for generations to come. All right. So we're going to get into the questions that you guys are typing into the Q&A box. But if you have to go, you can sign up and get access to the e-course at simplepassacastro.com slash banking. But if you're already part of the club, this is the URL to get access to the e-course. So everything that we talked about today, broken up into a lot more bite-sized pieces in the the e-course format that you guys know and love from us and a lot other cool little tips in there too. I would say the next step is just getting an illustration and just moving forward. But let's let's hit on into these other questions. Uh, One that stands out. So I think Mark Mark asks, hey, as a commission agent, why would you design a policy to minimize your commissions? Truly it's the reason why I do it personally is because it's a better product for the client. I'm really doing it for the client first. I am an investor first also. So commissions are nice, but that's not my livelihood or why I'm personally doing it. It really is to give back to Lane's community specifically, but other investors also and provide them the best product that I feel is out there and truly have the client benefit. I feel even as with the minimized commissions, it's still very good, very willing to share what those commissions are on a call. But yeah, minimizing the commissions, it's it's still pretty healthy, the commissions, which is somewhat appalling when you hear like 100%, the the standard whole life, those commissions are basically 10 times what I would be pulling on the same size policy. And I'll also comment that if you look at all my business associates, like the one thing I don't want at this point in my life is nonsense. And that typically nonsense occurs from somebody who is not financially free and still working in scarcity mode. And in the deal side, it's nice to work with high net worth partners because when things go wrong, we just throw in 
few hundred thousand bucks each and get the problem solved and make it right for the clients. But business is tough. And when you're not in alignment for the clients and you're more in alignment, or there's a lot of people out there, real estate agents, insurance agents, lending brokers, and all the people in this financial industry that are, they need to pay their own bills, like financial planners. It's just not the people I want to get into bed with personally. And and I mentioned that, and I, I that's just maybe some life advice for people is when you can get to a point, why do we all do this? to get financially free. Well, why? Well, to do what we want with whom we want, when we want it. So that's why I work with people that are have seen the investments work, fi in, in a place in their life. And it just makes things better for everyone, including myself. And it's not like we need to really make money with this life insurance thing either. It just helps augment everything else going on. More, less fees, more money to invest. And then the investments we can take down better deals in the future. But other questions here, what life insurance company do you use? We're not, Tyler's not captive. So he's not forced to sell you like a certain company can go wherever. Currently, I think, I know this is where Tyler goes to all these like meetings and they hang out and they do their secret handshakes and they figure out which ones are like the best one based on the rates and the flexibility. But I think they're the cool kids are using Guardian these days, but that'll change all the time. I've seen it change a couple of times these last five years. Is a minimum amount of a suggested amount of life insurance? I would say, look guys, like if you're going to do less than 10 grand a year, that's a waste of time for everybody. <laughs> Most people are minimum, I would say are doing like what, 50,000 a year? I don't know. What's your take on this one, Tyler? Yeah. The, tech, the true answer is you could do a any size policy the, that enhanced accelerated benefits rider, and this is specifically for Guardian, that gets tagged on for free if your whole life death benefit is at least a hundred thousand. So in that forty-five year example, with that forty-five, forty-six a year, he was buying hundred ninety thousand. So in his case, he could go about half of that twenty-five thousand a year, or maybe twenty-seven thousand a year would be the smallest policy that he gets that benefit from. I've done I've written policies for people about 10,000 a year. It's you can see it, it but it's not it, the it's a small policy where they're not going to be able to have access to percentage-wise you'll have access to the same amount of money. It's just that it, it is relatively small in the sense of why we would be doing this. You guys are investing in private placements and syndications, I would think, guys. And you like, all your networks are over a million dollars. So I would say like use case, I would say average person are grouped a million and a half. They are able to save fifty to $100,000 at least a year. And they have a bunch of liquidity and maybe a hundred or a couple hundred thousand dollars a year for five to six years would be a good starting point. But sure, if, if you'd like to get a health review twice, and that's what I did. I started with a $50,000 policy every year. And then I wish I did more because then I figured out what it is. And I think that's where you talk to other investors. And until you get the hang of, oh, we take a policy loan to go into a deal, you realize that 50 grand is hardly anything. And then you start to understand, oh, I, now I understand why, why everybody's doing 100, 200, $250,000 a year into this they just put it in there and they drain it out number three i think yeah so oh, neat. we our question is we are older and don't have any children 
can these policies be set up for any relatives like nieces or nephews and maintain all the same loan benefits? Yeah, so there's three main components to the policy. There's the owner, the insured, and the beneficiary. So in this case, you could be the owner. We've had, I specifically haven't done nieces or nephews, but there could be a reason why we would do that. And there's an insurable interest. The key thing we need to establish is what is the insurer's insurable interest to you, or if you have an insurable interest to the person you're insuring. And nieces and nephews, if you don't have children, could be that something, some some write-ups we've had is that they intend, the nieces and nephews will in, take care of you as you age. You guys have that agreement, so you have an interest. If they were to pass, then you would use that proceeds to hire someone else or have to care for that. Or, or the death benefit would be used to find someone else to care for you. So that's a typical story we've presented multiple times, not specifically for nieces or nephews, but I think that story plays continue. And again, we can talk specifics on a call and get to know all the details. Question four here, is infinite banking appropriate to start if I am over the age of 70? Yeah, we touched about this on the earlier parts, but it depends. Typically at 70, you might have a working child or someone else that may make more sense starting on them. But again, we could just run the different scenarios to see what makes sense. My oldest client is 68 and it's yeah, because normally older people have done it on their working children. Question five here, are there no deals? There are no deals in life insurance. And I would say, yes, this life insurance folks are commodities. You guys can go shop it around. It's just a matter of how much your agent wants to take in commissions. It's all the same dang thing from the same underlying insurance company. But the question is, can you address the downsides that the 910 design or 9010 design, which again is where you maximize the cash value, you decrease the commissions. So once a policy is paid up, we're not able to sink a big amount into it. You want to take that one, Tyler? Sure. Yeah, we we actually answered the first half of the question. I think on the during the call, the the downsides mainly is there's some limitation on the funding duration for that target amount. At some point, that's one of the biggest downsides for a 1090 or a 9010 design. But the other question, once you once a policy is paid up, you won't be able to send. Yes. So you once the policy is paid, it, we you do an option to do a reduced paid up. That makes the policy paid up, so you no longer can contribute any more funds to it out of pocket. The policy will continue to grow because as you receive dividends, it goes to purchase additional paid up insurance in that fashion. But the good side of that is that you no longer have to put anything in either and the premiums are zeroed out. So they're not taking out any premiums from your policy cash value. Yeah, and I'll comment more on that one. Like, I think if you wanted to do, you want to fund your policy long, long term because you're in that stage of life where you just don't care anymore. You're not taking coupons or maybe you are, but you're not like optimizing at this point in your life, right? Imagine you got $20,000, $50,000 of monthly passive cash flow coming in every single month and maybe you don't have kids. You just don't really care. 
right? Your time is more valuable than money. You may just want to put your money in somewhere and have it make a little bit of money and, and be able to continue to grow it and fund it with more new fresh cash. Instead of taking that cash and investing it, which I think most of the people on the call are going to do because they're still in growth mode, then maybe a 70-30 policy where you can keep funding it might work. But again, I think that one is, maybe talk to Tyler on that one too. All right, some more questions. Number one here, can you talk about the advantages of using IPC with your charitable giving? Yeah, or, so I don't know about specifically charitable giving, but you could have the death benefit or a charity be a beneficiary of your policy. Or secondly, the, your death benefit could go to a trust and you could have that within your trust determine what to give. I don't know if that's the question or in regards to your annual charitable giving. I don't know if- yeah, I don't know exactly where that question is going, but I know you can assign, if you didn't have any kids, you could probably assign an IBC to whoever you want. Yeah. Maybe if whoever's question that was, maybe type it into the Q&A box and come back to it. But question two, in this example, and I think they're referring to that illustration page, what is the max we could take a loan from? Is it from the net cash value? Yeah, that's correct. The net cash value column, and we conservatively say 95% of that is what would be available in a policy loan. So... In in year one, forty one thousand seven hundred thirty five. So ninety five percent of that. Yeah, the way you guys should be doing this, or most people, is you put the money in. You have forty one thousand in net cash value, but you take a forty one thousand dollar loan the next day, and you go into some deals. All right, that's the way you do this. And then, of course, the next year when you have to make your next premium and paid up additions and you fund it and you get that. But at some point, the money rolls in and then you refund it up and then you use this as that liquidity source to slush money in and out of. And then now maybe you're seeing the big picture on the usage of this whole thing. There is is a slight delay because the you can't do it the very next day. You. It would be oh. ten. It would basically be ten business days if you're using that same funds that you just deposited, because the insurance company will need it to clear. So they typically wait ten business days, then they'll process your loan. You can go in and request it right away, but it normally won't get processed till that tenth business day because they they want to see that the funds cleared. There's one way of getting it slightly sooner than that. And if we can provide a bank statement showing the funds cleared your bank, they'll accept that and then um, release the funds. But typically that doesn't come into play unless you're taking it out right after. So, Yeah, good point. Good point. I definitely, I think that's where you guys talk with either Bree or Chad or team at simplepassivecashflow.com. If you guys are, you guys are cutting the wire a little too close there, just let us know. And we typically can accommodate people. We do this ourselves. So we know it's the, it's not like the day of, but it can take a week or so. Question four, what do you think is a good target of how much percent of one's net worth should be a typical investor put into IBC? I don't know if net worth is a good thing right off the bat, but I would say whatever excess liquidity you have, 
should be is more of an indicator. And I would go back to my other RX slide on that. But as far as like net worth as a percentage, when you're under half a million dollars net worth, you need every single dollar going to investments, not this stuff. So I'm not, I would say if your net worth is under half a million dollars, don't waste your time on this stuff. Go make more money or go save it, save more money and invest it. But I think once for most investors, million dollar net worth, we've got excess. We're not the greatest. We're not the most efficient with our liquidity. Meaning you got 10 grand here, you got 50 grand in this account, you got hundred, $200,000 of liquidity or equity, debt equity in your house. I think that's most of us on the call here who are credit investors. I think at that point, it would make sense to start implementing this strategy. But as your net worth grows, it's hard to say, right? And I think this is where you mix it up with other accredited investors. You have these types of conversations. To me, if we were on a console, I would ask you, what, are, what is your long-term goals? Do you want to continue to ratchet up to 5, 10 million, $20 million net worth and can continue to grow? Or once you get to 4 million, you want to just shut off the engines and live life as the 4% rule with 20 grand of passive income coming in every single month. It's, it really matters up to you, but I don't, yeah, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know, Tyler, you want to put in your two cents on that? Yeah, I think the net worth is slightly different. The net worth can play a part as far as being able to qualify for more insurance based just on your annual income. But I don't it's hard to say what do you, typically the net worths of these guys and you know, the financial profiles, like what's, I think that's what the question is asking, right? Like of all of the sophisticated investors doing this, what do you see them? Doing? I think it's more like people want a bucket size, a certain bucket size. And so say someone wants a $2 million bucket at some point, but that could be funded differently. That could be a hundred thousand or 200,000 over 10 years. It could be 250000 over eight years, or it could be 50000 or 50000 over, what was that, 40 years. So it's really the size bucket, and that's what I'm talking like your cash value size at some point in life. That's usually what people are trying to target of saying. Oh, yeah, good point. I think for like most business owners, having half a million or a million dollars to be able to get at in end game is cool. Any more than that is just a little excessive, right? You could have your money elsewhere. This is not a growth option. You should have your money elsewhere making at least five to 10% elsewhere. To have more than a million dollars is a little silly. So yeah, good point there, Tyler. This is, it, I would look at it not as a percentage of your net worth, but like what kind of liquidity slush bucket that you want to have. I would say at most investors, it's at least a couple hundred thousand at least is what you want at some point. Question five, what's wrong or not so good about, they mentioned Northwest Mutual. What are like, it, we're talking about the flexibility and the rates, but like, why is it that the ones that we're rolling with now are the ones that we are? Well, I think specifically with Northwestern, we mentioned them as a, one of the strong mutual insurance companies. From my understanding, those are all captive insurance agents where they have to be with Northwestern Mutuals exclusively. I personally like being independent and being able to be a broker, shop around or see different companies versus 
stuck with one company. Yeah, North, Northwest Mission is definitely one of the like the triple A rated ones, which is what we were looking for. But the word on the street is like when you start to build these policies for liquidity, taking money out, their policies just aren't set up for that. And certainly your cash values aren't going to be as high, uh, which is the whole point of why we're doing this, which most financial planners don't under, really understand. What a uh, question here. Would it be better to do two policies and keep one going rather than having it total paid after seven years? So either way, it doesn't matter. I think it's like the whole ready, fire, aim kind of mentality, I think is the best approach here, especially because the stuff are commodities and it's no risk, essentially. Stuff is more secure than banks. So the ready, fire, aim mentality here might be good to just get one policy and you'll right size it on the second one a year or a few years later. That's again, that's my personal, like I got one and then I got another one for myself and then I followed up with one for my spouse. I hit that ideal bucket size or I will very soon. And then or, yeah, I don't know, well, you got comments on that? Yeah. So I, it, it depends. It, because there's flexibility in how we can design it. So we're not, even though we show the seven-year funding duration, you, if you, if the funding duration is an issue, we can design something for 15 years or so, or maybe even longer. But from a financial efficiency standpoint, I think starting two policies, if it started, if it's, if you started at the same time, then I think that there's no loss of efficiency. If you're starting one maybe a little bit further down the road, then one, there's a risk of the insurability. Something may happen over the two years that makes you less insurable. But also, even if it's the same health rating, you may be two or three years older. There is some cost to that. But again, that cost may be less than if you started off with a larger policy that you don't always max fund. So it sort of depends. And that's where we can go back and forth with some designs to show you the what ifs or compare the different two scenarios. Yeah. And then piggybacking on the last question, question two here, end game, what amount of cash value would you think is too much? 5 million, 10 million. So the cash value is again, that bucket, that source of slush fund that you ideally want. I'd say for most people, it's at least a quarter million to like a million or two million. I think you got to be careful that sometimes the cash value bucket size is different than like the death payout, which we mentioned before. We mentioned 10 million. That's the death payout. But as far as like right sizing the bucket, which is the cash value portion, that's up to you personally. Just just know that your money could be making more money elsewhere. So you don't want to go overboard with it. I don't know. A million dollars is a nice, if you're an end game, it's nice to have the peace of mind that if something goes wrong, you've got a million dollars to just throw down and bail somebody out, bail yourself out at some point. That might seem like a lot of money, but in an end game, it's more security is what you're looking for at that point. And I think the bucket size can be large but you're in control of how full it is. Most of, even though say my bucket is two mil, at this stage, a lot of that cash value is out deployed. I can make a choice at some point to start filling that bucket back up by paying off the loans or continue having it 
deployed in investments. But that having a bu- large bucket size to me is beneficial. How you utilize it, you can make the decision, and it's not one size fits all. Or you, you can course correct. Or right now, I have everything deployed. At some point, I may want it full and just live off that four or five percent dividends. Be happy and not have to have the funds deployed. So I think. I don't know. For me personally, my goal would, would be five mil target. I'm not quite there as far as total bucket size. I think when you're getting to really end game, now you're thinking about you're putting your life insurance in your irrevocable trust, and that's called an ILET. But for most people on the call, your guy's net worth is not n twenty million plus, so. Um, it doesn't matter because you don't hit those state and federal estate tax limits. So doing that is really no benefit to you guys. But yeah, we always like to have a conversation over in person when you guys buying the nice bottle of wine because your net worth is $20, $50 million, of course, if that's the question you're asking. But similar on those lines, maybe your net worth is not $20 million, but it's five. You may want to be thinking about the charitable giving. And that's this this question here. So it kind of was a follow-up to the last question. And they said, your regular annual charitable giving, instead of cash contribution, purchase a single pay life policy with no MEC concerns for a nonprofit on yourself as a major donor to the charity would have an insurable interest on you with the charity as the owner and beneficiary they can use the policy loans for whatever they would have used a cash donation for and the death benefit to buy more single pay life, making it an infinite endowment. Yeah, that that actually sounds like a very interesting strategy. I personally haven't looked or used it in that way, but this definitely sounds like, yeah, it sounds very possible to do this. Yeah, there's a lot of uses for this stuff. And I think we put a lot of these more advanced strategies in the client section because when you're in end game, you get a little bored and you'd look for these types of strategies. For now, I think we just wanted to keep it simple for folks. Just get going with a policy, throw in 50 grand a year, 100 grand, maybe a couple hundred thousand a year for now, and then get going down the road and making making money two places. The quicker you start doing this, the quicker you can make money two places and the quicker you can start to create the time space, the headspace for you to ask these kinds of good questions and come up with these strategies. Also along the lines of end game, one last question came in here. If you still use this bucket for deals or whatever else you want while still compounding, why would you want to limit it? I think the big thing that I've personally found And what was a roadblock for myself is when you go over a $10 million death payout or policy, now the life insurance companies are going to want to see a whole bunch of documentation proving that is how much you make per year. And that might be a little bit of a pain for you to do. And especially if you're not making income at that point in life. So that, that I think that is another reason why if you guys are still working your day jobs, you got to do this now because all these policies are based off of your ability to make money. That's what life insurance is at the end of the day, you being able to make money, which is why getting policies on your little kids is a waste of time because they can't really qualify for that much. Why? Because they don't make money, they don't have jobs. So 
you know, like a lot of it is based on how much you make at your business or how much you make at your day job, your salary. So it's one of those things where you set up a policy before you leave your day job or retire. But if you're already at end game and you're looking to just keep funding this thing to attorney, I think you're going to run up to the issue of them saying you're not making any active ordinary income where you don't have an income source at that point, other than your passive investments, of course, but they're going to have a hard time qualifying for you. But I don't know, Tyler, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I, what you're saying is, I think, right on. I think Mark's specific comment is, why stop using your bucket for deals when it, you, it still compounds, you can still have it out for deals and grow your wealth. And I personally feel that's a the backup plan is to fill back up the bucket, right? And then you no longer have to chase any deals or expose yourself to risk. It may be deleveraging risk at that point to just say, hey, I just want that consistent 4%. I intend to have my money working. At some point, maybe deals may be a lot harder to find or whatever it is. This can be a fallback plan to have that 4.5% dividend returns and live off of that without having to to deploy money at all for going forward. But there's that. I think that's what that, that alluded to the the thing about children which we didn't really touch about there is a limitation on non so you can pull on children or minors the limitation would be the death limit the death benefit limit will be 50% of what the parents have as death benefit so if you as a parent have 5 million dollars of death benefit a child would only be able to qualify for 2 and a half million of that and then the health rating is a general health rating like what it would be for group like at work when you get group term insurance it's just a generic health rating so that health rating is not as great so oftentimes with all of that combined for a minor you might be able to throw in eight to ten thousand a year total that's the maximum you could put in a year still and because the health rating is not the best it may not be the most efficient use of that ten thousand purely for financial reasons. There's other reasons you might want to do it for a minor, for a child anyway. But if you're looking purely financially, that may not be the best use of that that $10,000. Any other questions, please type it into the box. Oh, Luke raised his hand. Or... Yeah, type, type it into the box there, guys. But I wanted to show you the e-course so you guys know how to navigate it but we'll put the replay of this up on here the way we have this laid out is introduction and then we broke out all the little slides into individual sections here for you guys and then implementation and then once you become a client get access to the more advanced content here that'll just keeps things fun and interesting but this is the e-course but to get access to this you got to go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash banking put your information in there but for yeah. most people yeah the, the only other thing too is that the it definitely is customizable and it's not a cookie cutter one design fits all or, or meets people's needs so that's where a lot of times it is some back and forth tweaking and that uh, so a lot of the information we provided today is general overall guidance definitely feel free to reach out and we can talk about specifics because there are small tweaks and things to that may be more beneficial for certain goals and than for others. So definitely reach out.